From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Christmas Eve 2019, joined by Danny Fleck in his weekly spot. Danny, it's been a while. Welcome back to Teeing It Up. Hi, man. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. There's a lot for us to get to, so let's start here. Garrett Cole, this is a huge contract, huge number of years, huge number of commitments, yet you have the opt-out after five, so 9-324 becomes 5-180. As a Yankee fan, what was your thoughts on this deal when you saw it? You, you knew once the Stroudsburg deal went down that we were going to see a, a bigger number for Cole. I think Stroudsburg was, what, 240, 260, somewhere around there. Um, I, I was imagining that Cole would get somewhere around 300 and uh, surpassed that by a ton. From a Yankee perspective, you knew that this was going to be the one guy that we were going to go all in on, even before free agency started, probably even all the way back to, to the trading deadline. You know, you knew that the Yankees needed to start pitching. You will obviously, from a, a front office perspective, want to see how your team shaked out. Uh, you know, if you were able to get to the World Series, they fell short against Colts Astros. Uh, but you knew heading into the winter that the one guy that they were going to make an offer to was going to be Cole. You knew they were going to outbid whoever they wanted to outbid, and they did just that. And I think it's the, the right guy for them right now. We'll, we'll see what happens when he gets into New York, when he starts pitching next year, if he's able to maintain that same level of success he's had for the past 18 months, you know, since being traded to Houston. I, I am just concerned when you sign a, a free agent pitcher, you know, what it is you're going to get for them just because pitching is such a, a wild card in general uh, these days. But it, it was the guy they had to go and get, and they made sure they did everything in their power to get him. 245 was the uh, 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 Strasburg number. Yeah, so, I mean, he, he blew that out of the water. And Shockingly. He, and I think a lot of that has to do with his uh, longevity of being, you know, knock on wood, healthy and productive. He had some crappy years in Pittsburgh, but, you know, the team around him wasn't great. But his last 18 months in Houston were unbelievable. And he spiked out this past year. You have to hope that going into New York, you maintain some of that. And I'll take 90%, 85% of what he was in the regular season, I, I want I want that production in the postseason for the Yankees because that's where they seem to have, have missed the spot the last three years and they've gotten to that postseason is that one dominant pitcher they can throw out there for seven innings and, and get that you know one run two run you know ball game and then turn it over to their their bullpen. So I, I'm banking on what he's done the last couple of years showing up and translating, at least for the first half of the deal, I think if you're the Yankees, you get two or three World Series trips in this contract with him as your frontline guy, that you're pretty happy with that investment. Talking to Danny Flecken in his weekly spot here on Teeing It Up. All right, lot lot to get to here on multiple fronts, so we'll get back to baseball at the end if we have time. Uh, first of all, the Giants and Eli Manning. Lost season, um, lost in a myriad of ways, but you saw what you've gotten out of Daniel Jones. You have to be pleased, by the way, with what you had last week against Washington, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm just so happy that Eli got one shot to go in there 
and win and win in front of the home fans. And it was those fans that were, that were booing him and wanting him gone two years ago, last year, finally came back around. And I think for the first time, maybe in a couple of years, really realized what Eli's done for them and, and how, how great of a face of the franchise he's been. And just as a football fan, I was just happy to see Eli, hopefully, because I, I hope he retires, goes out successfully. Yeah, I mean, the Giants played tough in the two games that they had in start. You know, they went to Philadelphia, had a nice lead. Eli was playing sharp in that first half, kind of caught the Eagles' defense off balance with a couple of things. And, you know, historically, the Giants in Philadelphia have, have not been great. I think it's Eli's. Uh, career. He's 10 and 20 in Philadelphia. It was 1 and 8 in his last nine. Giants, you know, have had struggles against, you know, a lot of teams lately, but specifically Philadelphia. But they offensively have figured out ways to beat Philadelphia's defense in the past. And, and they seem to have done that, you know, in the first half against them. Unfortunately, they just ran out of steam. They weren't able to capitalize on some of the ineptitude that Philadelphia was showing in that game and allowed Philadelphia to come back as they have done, I think, in the last four or five games when they played in Philadelphia. They've had a lead going into the last drive of the fourth quarter and have allowed Philadelphia to win that game. But Eli had a, had a good game. I thought he was very productive in, in what they allowed him to do. And then that Miami game was a little worrisome. Um, they started off very, very flat, and Eli threw a couple of bad interceptions. But that defense seemed to have turned around in the second half, gave some flight to both, you know, the, the crowd and to the offense, and then they were able. Hello? There are some cell dead spots on this route that he's taking. Um, so. This may be that. Hello, Danny. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, you you hit a cell dead spot there for uh, about 30 seconds. All right, I, I forgot where I left off. So. Uh, you were just talking about how they eventually uh, found their uh, 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 groove in the Dolphin game and was able to, to, to send Eli out a winner. Yeah, it was just nice to see that raw emotion from Eli that you rarely get to see. And, you know, I know he'll be debated for the next five years whether he retires or not this year where he belongs. But, you know, from a, a perspective of being a Giants fan, it, as much as, there, you know, it's been bad the last couple of years, it's important to remember how lucky we were to have someone that we could trust to go out there every single week, play full 16 games, and deliver in some of the biggest moments that he was put on. So, yeah, it's going to be sad to see him go, um, but it's the right thing for that franchise to do. It's the right thing for him to do to move on, and hopefully Daniel Jones can take what he's learned from Eli this year and lead the Giants for the next 10 years. Um, all right, so now you look at what Daniel Jones did, and uh, just briefly, because obviously these are – are are meaningless games that uh, they're just playing out the schneid here for experience and for playoff spots. I was just really impressed with how well Daniel Jones uh, uh, just just you know persistently in a game where the defense was was giving up yards and points, 
just kept going and going and going and ultimately led that drive in overtime for, for the W. Yeah, he had a great game. Um, he did a lot of the things that I've liked this year from him. He's mobile in the pocket. He's able to escape, extend plays. His deep ball, I think, is more accurate than people thought it was coming out of college. You know, he hit uh, Shepard on the first touchdown pass in a beautiful wheel route right in between the safety and the corner. He hit uh, Saquon for a long touchdown down the seam. And he, he seems to understand what he needs to do now. I, he still has a long way to go. He has to be better at reading zone coverages and how to, to pick apart zones because that's going to be a, a big thing I think he's going to see next year as, as film gets out on him. Um, he's been amazing on the road. I think during the broadcast, they said that he had 17 touchdown passes to one interception on the road which is just, you know, unbelievable for a rookie quarterback to be able to go on the road and put up those numbers. Despite, despite the competition, take the competition and the records of the team he's out of it, for a rookie quarterback to be able to do that, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you, you see what the Giants' offense can look like when Saquon is, is 100% healthy as Daniel Jones matures, the development of guys like Darius Slayton, Golden Tate get more comfortable in the offense and throwing Shepard out in the field. And I thought he was going to mention that Evan Ingram's not, not out there either. It's a shame that it's taken this long for them to kind of click in that sense. Um, like you mentioned, lost season it is what it is. But I, I like the progression I've seen from Jones this year. I, I understand he's not the flashiest guy that, that was drafted or will be drafted, but he seems to be the right fit for what they need right now and hopefully continue to grow and that team around him can grow and they can get some Alright, playoff picture entering week 17. The Ravens have it all clinched and we're going to see none of them this week. Pats going for the bye. Chiefs going for the bye. Texans have clinched. Buffalo's clinched. And then uh, Tennessee and Pittsburgh and Oakland battling for the sixth spot. The question that I have for you sitting here right now it's clear that the Ravens are, are a complete team, including having the best kicker in the NFL. The Pats got it done versus Buffalo, but it's still not quite clicking. And I just wonder if the Chiefs are a more complete and better team or how badly the Pats need this bye week so that Julian Edelman can heal up. You're up there in Boston. What's the vibe around this team? This is going to have to be a team that gets turnovers and wins on special teams. In my mind, if they're going to contend into the playoffs, and I still think we're headed towards a Baltimore-KC um, AFC championship game. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, that, that win against Buffalo, uh, I thought it was a pretty impressive game by them. You know, they, they found themselves in a dogfight. You knew it was going to be a dogfight. They were able to overcome some deficits. Uh, they gave up some deep plays, which, you know, isn't really something that happens that often with the Patriots defense, at least not this year. And they were able to fight in there. They got their run game going. They seem to have, uh, you know, at least picked up on some uh, cues on how to get that going for them. So I think they're going to start to fine-tune that as we head into the postseason. I think the biggest thing for them, like you mentioned, is getting that bye week, making sure that everybody is, is healthy they need to have healthy. Edelman is obviously a, a big spark for them. We saw what happened when he was out for a, a short period of time. They came right back in. They had that drive to take the lead. But I, I think it's that, that bye week, and they're going to get it. They're playing the Dolphins at home. You know, there's no reason why they should even have that game be close. 
but that bye week is going to be really important for them. And, and you hope that whoever they get has a tough enough game and, and fights it out emotionally, takes a lot out of that team so they have to come up to Fox. I still think coming up to Foxborough is, is a mental feat in itself. Despite seeing them lose up there a couple of times in the playoffs, the only team that's ever done it, at least that I can remember, have been Baltimore, and Baltimore's not coming there. So I think that they're going to be in a good spot heading into you know, the divisional round. Just have to make sure that nothing extra happens this week when they play the Dolphins on Sunday. A wacky, wacky NFC picture. 49ers, Packers, Saints, Seahawks, and Vikings have all clinched. The one spot left is Philly and Dallas, and yet we have this situation uh, on top where there's a bunch of teams that could be the one seed and or fall the sixth seed. And in my mind, if I'm San Francisco, this is vital to beat Seattle and hopefully get the one seed and be 13-3. and I think San Francisco is a lot more vulnerable on the road than they are at home. The Packers are the team nobody's paying attention to. Maybe last night will give them some attention in a, in a, in a, in a really well-played game against Minnesota. But in my mind, let's first talk about the top. San Francisco Packers and the Saints. Who needs that one spot or that first round by the most of those three teams in your mind? Or, or, or sorry, and the Seahawks. I think... If you're looking at it from like an injury perspective, you have to say Seattle. They got ravaged this past week with injuries, and no one's coming through that door again for them. You know, that's been hurt. They lost their two top running backs, signing two free agents yesterday, and Robert Turbin and Marshawn Lynch. Uh, you want to make sure that Clowney is healthy, that Austin's healthy on, on that defensive line. So if I'm looking at it from that perspective, I'm saying Seattle, just so they can kind of get back to where they worth most of the season. But if I take that out of it, I think the team that needs the home field advantage the most is, is the Saints. We have seen what they've done on the road in the playoffs. It's not been great for them. They've had some heartbreaking losses the last couple of years. Uh, also, last year was at home. I think that's the one team that will thrive, just thrive at being at home. So I think if, if I'm saying who, has, who needs it the most, just Overall, I'd say it'd be the same. They just are a different team at home, and having to have that home field advantage, understanding what that means to them, I think goes a long way. I think the Saints, any sort of situation in, in where weather is involved, would be scary for me if I'm a Saints fan. You know, I don't know if I want to see them go up to Lambeau Field and play in you know sub-zero temperatures with a windshield. Uh, of, you know, minus 10, I think it takes away a lot of what they do from, like, a strength perspective as far as their offense is concerned. We got about five minutes left with Danny Flecker here in his weekly spot on teeing it up. All right, college football playoff semifinals this Saturday. LSU-Oklahoma. For me, Jalen Hurts has to have a perfect game if you want to stop stop Joe Burrow and, and, and this offense. Obviously, there's been a layoff. You have to get get back in your rhythm. I was shocked to see that the Lions, 13 and a half. I thought it would be tighter. I think this can be a shootout. But in my mind, this is LSU's game to to lose, and Oklahoma's going to have to play a perfect game to, to keep pace. I agree. I think if you're Oklahoma, you have to understand, you know, a stop and third down defense are going to be your, your biggest 
biggest thing in this game, I think that offense could move the ball. Uh, I think they're going to be healthy with their running back situation. They have C.D. Lamb back. Jalen uh, Hurts will be able to hurt them, I think, on the ground and you know through the air. Let's not forget, he played in the SEC for a number of years. He understands that conference, understands his team, understands their, their strength on defense. And I think Flipping Riley is a really good game plan coach, and, and he's been able to get a lot out of this team this year. Probably his least talented Oklahoma team from top to bottom, but they've, they've found a way to get back into it. But I just don't know how many stops that defense in Oklahoma can get. you, you got to think that LSU is going to have the ball at least 10 times in that game. I expect that game to be played pretty fast. But you're probably looking then, you know, with an added couple of possessions, 12 to 13, you know, will Oklahoma be able to stop them? And when they stop them, will they be able to score? I just don't see that happening on a consistent basis. I, I think it is a little bit closer to a game, uh, somewhere maybe around, you know, eight, ten points, but I do think LSU just has too much firepower on offense, and then their, their defense against Oklahoma's defense, when you look at it on paper, it is also head, head and shoulders above that. Throwing there some suspensions that have happened for Oklahoma, I think LSU is clearly the better team, and should be able to win that game, I think, running away with it in the second half. And then that brings us to, I believe, the, the, the best semifinal game of the two and one that could be really close and a nail-biter and really competitive, Ohio State-Clemson. And this is a situation where if you just lay out on paper the stats without the schedules, I would say Clemson. However, Clemson has played nobody and has not had to make a big play. Trevor Lawrence has in, in, in the fourth quarter. And I was talking to a, a uh, Clemson fan this week who said that their number one concern about this game is not Chase Young, is not Justin Fields, is not any of specific people. It's can this offense step up in a back-and-forth game and make the play in the fourth quarter versus an Ohio State team that has just gone through the gauntlet of having to face Penn State, Michigan, and Wisconsin to get to this spot and be 13-0. Yeah, it's a really interesting game, and I think a lot of these, these two teams are similar in a lot of aspects. The one thing that I think Clemson has, uh, you know, that they're going to take advantage of is their preparation and their experience in the situation. Dabo Sweeney has played in the playoffs now, what, four years in a row? Has played against Alabama three of the last four years. they played Ohio State in the past in the college football playoffs. Um, has a quarterback that has won a national championship, has a roster that's missed the national championship. So I think their experience and their preparation comes in handy in this, in this game and in this situation. Uh, Ohio State hasn't been here. I understand who they played on both sides. I, I just look at it from an experience perspective and a coaching perspective. I, I think Clemson has the edge there. And I just like what they have from a skill set standpoint. I know that you know, the Big Ten was tough this year. Ohio State flew out a lot of teams, had some close games there towards the end, probably running out of gas a bit. But they haven't faced a team with, you know, the wide receivers like Clemson has, uh, the running back that Clemson has, and the quarterback that Clemson has. And I think Clemson has enough on defense. Slow down Ohio State enough, maybe make field, feel the pressure, get hit a couple of times, get rattled. You know, he is still nursing an ankle injury. We'll see how much that comes into effect. But I think Clemson has enough, you know, across the board to give Ohio State a little bit more than what they've seen this year. And I think Clemson's the team I'm going to back in that game. So Clemson wins the second semi. Who wins the first semi? 
LSU. LSU is head and shoulders above Oklahoma. Like I said, I think it's going to be a closer game than they go with the spread is predicting. If I'm looking at it to get some action there, I'm probably going to go with the over. I think that's like a 45-35 game, um, just given the offenses and, and you know where we are with that. Uh, but I, I think we're looking at LSU clumps to the final, and I think we're going to see another battle in, in that game if we get that. Danny Flecka uh, here on Teeing It Up. Thank you for coming on the show on this Christmas Eve to look at the world of sports and preview Week 17 in the National Football League and the college football semifinals taking place this Saturday. Have a wonderful holiday, my friend. You as well. Thank you, and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.